Alright church, has uh, everyone found 1 Peter chapter 1 okay? Comes right after Genesis. Okay. You're listening, okay good. So that's a good start. Somewhere after Genesis. I didn't say how long after Genesis, I just comes after Genesis. Okay, as our custom, as a church, let's stand and read the Word of God. We're going to read from chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Lord, we uh, come to you now as we read the letter of Peter, and he's very much like Paul in his writing uh, in these verses, and that he's jamming a lot into the, just a few words. And there's, these are nine rich verses, God, that are full of spiritual truths. Each, almost every uh, verse itself could be a sermon on its own. But we don't have the, the time in this next 45 minutes to to get through uh, one verse only, we're going to do nine. And so I pray, God, that you help me sort out which is important for the people to hear today. You know where their minds are at. You know what their experiences are, the trials they're going through in their own lives. I, I don't always know to the fullest measure what that looks like for each person in here. So we ask you, God, as you guide me through your spirit to speak uh, the parts that matter for the congregation today and where they're at, and for you to... Um, guide me in a way that I may not be prepared for, but I take the chance because I know that you're, you're prompting me to speak to them in this way. I, uh, we look forward to our time, God, and this is very applicable to us as our culture is slowly uh, more and more rejecting the Christian life and the Christian message and the Christian viewpoint. And so First Peter is very relevant to us. And so we want to learn from you. We want to take these truths and apply them to our lives because they're very relevant for us now and in the future. So we look forward to our time. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome to our first official sermon in our new series in 1 Peter. Before we begin, I want to give you a few words of introduction as a reminder of what we covered last week. So remember that the churches Peter were writing to were undergoing persecution. They were a, they were a suffering church. 
not in the typical sense that we often think of. They weren't being physically persecuted like on a regular basis, although there was op we were open to that as a possibility for them. But they seem to be more having uh, the experiences of social rejection, uh, social ostracism. Their culture around them was harassing them, slandering them, discriminating against them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter recognized that these believers may be losing hope. Uh, and in danger of that because of the constant pressures to uh, stand up for Christ in that kind of society. So he wrote this letter as a means of encouragement to strengthen them in their faith so they would stand firm in the commitments to Christ and the truth of the gospel. So in our sermon today, we're going to actually cover how Peter reassures these Christians by helping them see how valuable they were to God and the promises he had in store for them and ultimately gain his perspective on how to deal with suffering in a culture that was rejecting them. You can see how this will be relevant for us uh, today and in the future. So with that all being said, uh, let's dive into verse 1 and read it together. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. It's interesting that Peter, as an apostle, addressed these believers as aliens. I don't know about you, but when I hear that in my head, I think of Star Wars characters. Star Wars characters. And could you imagine Peter, you know, uh, writing to Yoda? And he's sitting in the congregation and he's like, mm, From Pontus I am, you know? <laughs> I highly doubt that that's actually what Peter's thinking about when he's going through that. Of course, as Peter has a spiritual um, Component and what he means by addressing them as aliens. They're they're made up of Jewish and Gentile believers, although the congregation would have been primarily Gentile. We discussed that last week in our introduction. Made up of primary Gentiles in this church, but a mixture of Jews as well. But he calls them aliens as giving them a, as a means of illustrating a spiritual truth and reality that had taken place in their lives. See, because of the spiritual rebirth that had taken place in their lives, they were no longer. Uh, they no longer belong to this world. They belong to God and the heavenly kingdom. Yes, they lived here. Uh, yes, they had homes. They had family. They had jobs to go to. They had responsibilities of how to conduct themselves. But they were to view this life as temporary. See themselves as strangers in a foreign land. Knowing that God's ultimate destiny and permanent place of residence for them was to be with Him in heaven. And this was Peter's first way of providing comfort to them. Yeah, because life was tough. Life was, was under a lot of pressures. Social rejection, slander, rejection, and uh, discrimination. So it was a hard life. And the suffering they were undergoing was painful. But this was only happening because they no longer belonged to this world anymore. They belonged to God. And as Paul rightly said in Colossians 1.13, they've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and literally transferred, transferred into the kingdom of light. But this makes you think about where you're at and where I'm at in our walk with the Lord right now. I mean, take a moment to think about the spiritual transformation that's taken your place in your life and how that has caused you to relate to this world. You see, probably before you're a Christian, in fact, I know it, life before, you're very comfortable at home. Very comfortable. You're comfortable with your non-believing uh, parents. With, with your non-believing friends. You are comfortable with the people at school who are non-believers. 
you're comfortable at work for those who are non-believers, and you actually felt right at home in that environment. And then you received the gospel, received the promises of God. And you went back into that same environment, and now all of a sudden, what used to be so normal has became foreign. It, I mean, you could have felt, in, even in your family of origin, your birth origin, that you feel like a total stranger within your own home, within your own family. And why? Because of the rebirth. Because of what Peter says in, in verse 3, we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I think it's important to remember this as we, as we think about this idea that sometimes we're in these situations, we actually kind of feel like really out of place and not normal in these situations. We're kind of uncomfortable. But that's a good sign. That's an that's assurance to you that you actually don't belong to this world and you belong to God. So the first step, of course, but by Peter was to remind them of their alien status as a way of giving them reassurance. But Peter continues by reminding them that they truly were God's chosen people as another way of assuring them. Look at verse uh, 1 and 2. <clears throat> he says, To those who reside as aliens, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May the grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now much ink has been spilled in Christian circles over these hot-button words. Chosen by God. The foreknowledge of God. Some of you will have elect in there and predestined and so on and so forth. We're going to look at these words more in detail in a second. But for now, I think it's important to point out in the passage what God did foreknow. And what did He predestine. Here's what we do know from the passage. He knew that he was going to have to initiate a plan of salvation for the very world in which he created. I'll say that again. He foreknew he was going to have to initiate a plan of salvation for the very world that he created. What he predestined was the means by which he was going to redeem humanity. We see this in verse 1 and 2 because of the Trinitarian reference. And look at all of the Trinity involved here. We have a reference to the Father, a reference to the Holy Spirit, and a reference to Jesus Christ. And look at the roles they have. God is choosing us. The Spirit is sanctifying us. And we're being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. If we were right on our own, if we were right on our own, why would we need to be sanctified? If we were God's children right from the beginning, like right from day one when we were born, why would we need to be chosen? And if we were righteous on our own apart from, from and connected to God in any way, why would we be, have to be sprinkled by the blood of Christ? So what we know here is that because we know in his foreknowledge that he's going to have to involve the Godhead, the Trinity, in the redemption of humankind. And let's take a look at each person's role in the Trinity. Starting with God the Father. It says that here that these aliens were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now when Peter referred to God's foreknowledge, it didn't mean that God chose them because he knew in advance that they would respond to his call. Rather, his choice conveys a sense of God's love towards them. Peter's point to the believers was that he was that he was writing to was simply this, to remind them that God took the initiative 
and chose them before they had done anything to deserve it. The fact that they were Christians at all was dependent on God's grace towards them. God was really choosing a team and He wanted them on it. Much like a hockey coach or a hockey manager when we see the draft. There's a bunch of players that are ready for drafting and they're all out there in the WHL and whatnot in these junior leagues and these managers come along and they choose people to be on their team and God is very much doing that with us. Peter actually gives us a prime example of elsewhere in his letter in terms of what choosing means when he was dealing with the nation of Israel. Turn to chapter 2 verse 9. This is speaking about Israel. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Notice here that Peter refers to Israel as God's chosen or elect people. Okay? Now remember how they were chosen and when they were chosen. They didn't get chosen by God because of anything they had done in advance to please Him, or because they even deserved it, but purely based on what? His love and His promise to Abraham. Look at Deuteronomy 7. This is, this is Him speaking to the Israelite nation. The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Look at Deuteronomy 9. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is not on account of the wicked sorry, no, it's on the account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. You see, you see this here, God's choosing of Israel was purely out of his love. Purely out of his love. There were all these nations out there, and he chose to start the, the plan of salvation with this nation. But he never chose them just so that they would be the only ones that would be in love with him and have this relationship. They were to be a light and to be used as an evangelistic tool to, 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 to rescue the other nations. That's why, like in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, you are God's possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of them who has called you. Israel was to be in a relationship with God for the message of spreading, spreading the gospel that they had back then so that the Gentiles could be included into the nation of Israel and become Israelites as well. So he wasn't limit, God wasn't limiting the choosing just Israel. It was all-inclusive. So again, the key here is that God's choosing of Israel and us as Christians is purely on the merit of His love. And has nothing to do with whether we deserve it or not. And that was Peter's point. So how did he set this plan in motion? Well, verse 2. Back in chapter 1. He chose us according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To sanctify means to set apart to make somebody holy, or to consecrate someone for service to God. So in God's foreknowledge, and His predestined plan, the people He chose, He then wanted the Holy Spirit to take an active role in their lives. First, the Spirit was to draw people to God, to move them from unbelief to faith, and once they come to faith, to continue on a daily basis to be present in their lives, leading them towards obedience in Jesus Christ. 
That's what the Spirit does in us. He, he, he called you, He called me, He convicted us of sin, when we, and then He responded to the Gospel message. And when He came into our lives, He sealed us, and He's been continuing to work in our lives, leading us towards obedience in the Christian faith. And of course, this was not possible with the third person in the Trinity as well, Jesus Christ. Without Jesus fulfilling His role, which was a sacrificial death on the cross, in which His blood was spilled for us, as a means of atoning for our sins, the Holy Spirit would have no work to do. Because it's ultimately, He's leading us towards Jesus and his, what He accomplished in His life. So God, in His foreknowledge, knew that He and the rest of the Godhead were to be the initiators of salvation. And Peter reminded the believers there, like he does us today, that we have a role to play in this. Our only role in this whole thing is that we are to obey Jesus Christ. That's all we're to do. We're to obey Jesus Christ. Sounds easy in concept, but hard in application in life in many times. But he draws in an interesting analogy to help us understand this obedience. I suggest that Peter is going back to Exodus 24. Because he says here that you, the sanctifying of the Spirit is to um, obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. This is an Old Testament reference back to Exodus 24. Remember the, the scene? Moses receives a law from God at Mount Sinai. He gathers a nation to reveal the law to them. And he publicly asks them, Are you willing to obey this? And they say, We will do everything the Lord commands. And so Moses takes animals, he sacrifices them, he puts half the blood in basins, and half the blood gets poured on an altar. The altar was representative of God, and the blood in the basins was sprinkled on all the people throughout the, throughout the wilderness. So the blood on the altar was a sign that God was going to uphold his promises in the covenant he was making with them, but the blood in the people was basically a sign that they were going to uphold their end of the covenant agreement which was to be fully obedient to God's commands. Now this, of course, was symbolic then of what Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross in the New Covenant. Through the death and the spilling of His blood at Calvary, He was going to ratify the New Covenant He made with us by allowing us to partake in the blessings He had, namely a relationship with God and the forgiveness of sins. And our part in the covenant then, in, in gratefulness to Him, was to obey Him out of love. So Peter's drawing on this Old Testament analogy to say this whole covenant was all about the people being obedient because of the, the atoning work of God. And likewise for us, our, because of the atoning work of God and the, and the initiation of the Godhead and bring us to salvation, our role is to simply be obedient to God. I uh, was tempted to leave this out of my sermon, but I, I can't leave this out of my sermon because of some of the, 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 the beliefs that maybe some of us have in here and also uh, maybe our friends who hold up different opinions about what these words chosen and foreknowledge mean. Well, I'm going to make a strong statement and I'm going to back it up from Scripture. A lot of people in the Christian faith think that being chosen or predestined is basically like a guaranteed ticket to heaven. That God, before the foundation of the world, before it was created, predestined those who are going to go to hell and those who are going to go to heaven. It sounds crazy, but it's a very popular view in the Christian world. In fact, when I was discipled and mentored in my first early years, the majority of people around me held this view. And so uh, I had to work through this for years as I was processing this as a Christian. 
So God in His foreknowledge chose and predestined the people apart from anything they did uh, before the foundation was, work, was created. So that means when they were born, that basically their destiny is already preset. So if you're chosen, that means when you hear the gospel, you will, all, you, will, you will respond to it because you've been predestined to respond to it. And basically, it's a guarantee for eternal life. So you kind of have like a spiritually elitist attitude because it's basically predestined, born, going to respond, going to go to heaven. And let me just say this. No New Testament writer ever thought that God's foreknowledge and choosing meant that apostasy could not be a realistic possibility. I'll say that again. No New Testament writer ever thought that the, the choosing of God or the foreknowledge of God meant that apostasy or falling away from God could, ne- could not be a realistic possibility. If that were true, what these other people teach, then you would expect Israel, who was chosen by God, to remain faithful to God. And look what happens here in Romans chapter 11 and what Paul says. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. You notice that? What is Israel according to God? Chosen. You will have elect in your Bible, some of you. And what does he say? You're an enemy to the gospel. Chosen enemy. Chosen enemy. Didn't start out that way. Wasn't supposed to go that way. They were chosen, to, and God wanted to bring them all, all probably two million of them, from, from Exodus, from the Exodus to Canaan. That was his preferred option. But they rebelled. And, they, and they, people, a lot of people will say, yeah, but Israel still made it to heaven. God killed them in the wilderness, but they still went to glory. They only lost earthly benefits. Do you know anybody who's an enemy to the gospel that goes to glory? <laughs> I don't. Never mind Israel. What about other New Testament churches? Because remember, Peter uses the word chosen in chapter 1 to describe these mostly Gentile Christians. But he references Israel in chapter 2.9. So the, the word chosen and elect that was reserved for Israel gets moved to the entire Christian community once after the gospel message was received. Right? So therefore, you'd expect some apostasy to be uh, uh, available or, or as an option in the New Testament uh, elect chosen people. And sure enough, that's what we find. Consider Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Just so you know, in chapter 3, verse 1, they're defined as holy brethren. Holy brethren. Look at this. See to it, brothers and sisters, there you go, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As just as it has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He's speaking to a Jewish audience because they're Hebrews. And he's re- before this, he's reminding them of Israel's history. He says, don't go back to the way your fathers responded to me in the desert. Don't do that. They didn't make it to glory and neither will you. 
So whether you're elect, in the elect or chosen by God's predestined plan in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's not a guaranteed ticket to heaven. God says, you have a role to play in your salvation. Yes, I, I chose you. Yes, I started this whole thing. Yes, the Godhead's involved. Yes, apart from your own righteousness and works, you'd never enter into glory. But once I've redeemed you, once I've redeemed you and I've done everything for you, you have a role to play. Your obedience to this gospel matters. It matters. So let's get back to the meat of the text now. So Peter, of course, has reminded these Christians in the way of reassurance that they were God's chosen people. Right? He's reminded them that they were aliens of alien status and that was a, a normal thing to experience. So he continues now to encourage them and reassure them by give, giving them some more, um, some more teaching. And he wants to tell them basically that there's joy to be had. There's joy to be had despite their difficult circumstances. And I suggest there's joy in three areas of the Christian life. The first area they would have joy in was the fact that they had a future heavenly reward awaiting them. There was a future heavenly reward awaiting them. Verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter provides a number of interesting details about heaven here that I don't want us to miss. And the first one is this, though. The only way you can actually enter into glory in the first place and receive this inheritance is if a spiritual rebirth occurs first in Jesus Christ. Right? He says, um, Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Again, we don't get into glory without a spiritual rebirth be taking place. Now this got me really thinking because we live in a very inclusive culture. And I say this with all honesty, like, you know, sometimes when we use the word all, we, we don't mean all, we just mean many. But I mean this, I've never been to a non-Christian funeral in which the message was this, this person's in a better place. I mean, the person could be just like a rat bag and uh, known, like, you know, no, even within the families and the pews, known for their, for their treacherous treatment of their families their whole lives. And out of mourning and just like honor and sympathy in those moments, they're saying, we know he's in a better place, we're in a better place. Not according to Peter. Not according to Peter. He says, this inheritance is only caused if you've been born again through a living hope and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's very difficult for us as Christians to proclaim this message in an inclusive, well, supposedly inclusive culture, except for Christianity, <laughs> right? But again, we don't have a choice but to teach the truth, that we only get to glory through the resurrection of Christ. But Peter wanted them to know how incredible heaven was, and so he gave him some defining characteristics. First of all, he said it's imperishable. Secondly, he said it's undefiled. And then he said it wouldn't fade away. So what do these words mean? Well, imperishable means to, um, well, imperishable just basically means it's not subject to decay. And it's free from destruction and catastrophe. It's undefiled and it's unpolluted. It's unstained by sin and contains nothing without God's approval. 
and, uh, and it wouldn't fade away and that it'll never wither, grow dim, or lose its beauty. So this place is pretty incredible because it's basically bulletproof in all, in all facets of life. Now, this of course was a stark contrast to the world that these men and women were living in. <laughs> Their world they were living in wasn't unstained by sin and it wasn't free from catastrophe. Uh, they, they were obviously being persecuted, being harassed and discriminated against and so they knew that uh, the world they were living in was full of trials and suffering. So Peter is writing to these men and women to encourage them by giving them an eternal perspective on how to deal with trials. He is saying to them, yeah, I know the world you live in is brutal at times. But remember, this isn't your permanent home and God has something better for you, better for you, that's coming in the future. I think it's vital for us to grab onto this church because when we're suffering, at least for me, you know what I focus on? How this world's failing me. Focus on how depressing it is to the relationships I might be going through or how I've experienced rejection. Might even get me into depression over some of these thoughts. But in what Peter's saying is this, you're focusing on the wrong home. Focusing on the wrong home. Stop worrying about what's happening in this world and focus on what the world that is to come for you. Again, because heaven's often far out of our minds in the midst of trials. And Peter's saying, make it forefront on your mind. The way of dealing with the trials and pressures of this world is to actually remember that God has not got His best for you here. He's got His best for you in the future. And I think of Joel Olstein, who wrote his book called, uh, uh, you know, Your Best Life Now. I mean, the title already contradicts Peter's message completely. I don't know how the health and prosperity gospel would sit through this sermon and listen to this today because it contradicts everything Peter's saying. But here's what Peter's saying though. Have joy in the midst of suffering knowing that heaven is your future reality. The one thing I don't want you to miss from this description of heaven though is how we gain access to it. How do we gain access to heaven? Starts with the spiritual rebirth. That's true. But look at verse 5. Heaven is protected by the power of God through faith, through your faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, a lot of people have different definitions of what faith is. They have different ways of defining it. So if faith is what gets us into glory, yes, God's protecting it. God's like a military commander protecting this inheritance for you. But it's protected by His power through your faith. So the way you access like God's power through this is to exercise your own faith. This is incredible. This is incredible when you think about this because here's the God of the world, the God of the universe, saying, I'm allowing you to participate in something of major magnitude here, something of eternal value, and I'm allowing you to participate in it. Yes, I'm protecting it, but your faith has to be the one, the, the means of accessing this. <laughs> Now, with this defi different definitions of faith going out there, uh, we need to define what faith is then, because if that's our means of accessing it, we better know what faith is. Well, let's go back to Peter's definition. Verse 2. You're sanctified by the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Faith, for Peter, is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just what's in your head, it's how you live. And you're going to find this all throughout the book, that Peter is going to talk about how we live, how we conduct ourselves, how we behave. These are all vital to him. 
So I don't know about you, but I find this then very humbling and alarming at the same time. See, if God's protection of my future inheritance is dependent on my obedience to Him, then that humbles me when I think about how many times I disappoint Him with my actions. But it's also alarming because it makes me then strive to remove all sin out of my life. And the Spirit has a role for us in that. So I'm humbled by the fact that God, as weak as my faith can be sometimes, He can look at that and go, that's still, that's still enough for me to protect this inheritance for you. But it's also alarming because I don't want to stay comfortable in that. I want to strive to be obedient to the Lord in all areas of my life. So God's extremely merciful and gracious in that even with moments of weak faith and with disobedience, if we continue to confess to Him and be faithful, He will promise to forgive us and restore us. I think the only time we're in danger with God is when we have habitual sin in our life. Habitual sin that we're known for. Are we known for outbursts of anger as a regular way of displaying our uh, attitudes and, and uh, communication to people? Are we known for being gossips? Are we known for being unforgiving people? Are we holding on to a lot of un- un- bitterness and unforgiveness as a pattern of life? These are the things that God warns about in the New Testament that can separate us from the God's love. But again, He's merciful. We confess those things and go His way from that day on. Um, not that we have to be perfect, we might still make mistakes, but as a general pattern of life, if we confess those things, God will be faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. So knowing this, church, if there's anything habitual in your life that you're aware of, know that God's got this uh, heaven protected for you, but He knows that your faith has a vital role to play in it as well. The second thing Peter wants us to have joy in is is joy in the midst of suffering and trials. That sounds a bit contradictory, but he wants us to have joy in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's important to establish first the context of what Peter admonishes, admonishes them to rejoice in. Notice the first two words of verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. So what's the in this? Back to verse 3 and 5. Rejoice in the fact that a spiritual rebirth has taken place in your life and God has a future inheritance for you which is protected. That's what they're to rejoice in. And it was with this knowledge that these believers could then endure the suffering they're experiencing. And Peter wanted them to understand that although they were under great distress, God could use these trials as a means of testing their faith, as a way of purifying and refining their faith like a precious metal would be in the midst of fire, like gold. So these trials, although unpleasant, were an opportunity to test the genuineness of their faith and prove where their loyalty stood. Would their loyalty be to the world? Would it be to their their family? Or would it be to the overall unwavering commitment of Jesus Christ? which would result, as he says here, in praise and honor when they met him in the future at his second coming. Again, I don't know about you, but I find this very convicting and challenging because my natural tendency in the midst of trials is to wish they would end. (laughs) Whenever I have struggles, I want out 
And my prayer life would be something like this. God, can you, get, can you fix this? Can you get rid of this? Can you remove this? Can you do all these things? Can you can tell them to stop doing this? And all sorts of things, right? And God said, and what Peter's saying here, actually, no, um, this is a time for God to test you to see where your loyalty lies. And when you think of gold, when you think of gold, I mean, actually, I'll go back in a second here. He says, he says that your, your faith is more precious than gold to him. Now, when you think of gold, like, I'm not a financial expert, but probably throughout the entire history of the world, gold is probably one of the most valuable uh, commodities or precious metals in terms of evaluating one's wealth. It's, it had wealth back in the days of Babylon, and it's got, it's got merit today even in our culture. So gold is, that's why we make gold medals instead of silver medals for the winner at the Olympic Games, because it's a more precious metal. But here's what Peter says. We all know how valuable gold is, but he says in verse 7, it's perishable. Gold, as valuable as it is, it's even perishable. Because when the world burns up, when, when the, in, this, in the second coming of Christ and in Armageddon and all these things happen, it's a new heaven and new earth. The gold we have in this world is destroyed. Everything in this world is destroyed. And Peter's saying this, as much as you think gold is valuable, it's perishable, but your faith isn't. That's eternal in value. That's eternal. It's imperishable. And that, to me, to God, that is more, pre- more valuable than a precious metal. When you think about that now, that shows you why trials are necessary. Because the trials produce... Uh, a, 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 um, the trials will reveal what your faith is. And if we fail in the test, it's, a, it's an indicator of where we need to grow in our relationship with the Lord. If we pass the test, then we can praise Him for the very things that we've been changed in. So trials reveal where our character is weak and where we're strong and where our growth needs to occur. And he says, if you come out of these, this on obedience to the Lord in these ways, it brings praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So many of us in here are struggling right now in various situations, but a lot of it is it's God's way of purifying you. It's God's way of refining you because he's saying you're not exactly right the way you are right now. There's more work to be done in your life. And uh, more work to be done in my life as well. And I'm very aware of the areas that God's refining me uh, on a weekly basis. <laughs> Finally, Peter says this, church. There's joy in knowing Jesus Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Notice Peter's amazing statement about the realities of our Christian life. He says this, although you have not seen him, you love him. That's the reality of your life. Ever seen Jesus? Ever? I ever have. I haven't. Peter had. But I haven't. You haven't. I think it's important to understand that this is like what Peter's saying here about the kind of faith these have despite the fact that they haven't seen him. And the way they know Christ despite the fact that they never saw him. You know, I say this because I find, like some Christians have this view that, you know, um, you know where Jesus is? He's sitting right there beside you right now. Did you know that? Did you know that, Rob, that Jesus is right there beside you right now? Did you know that, Shelley, that Jesus is right there beside you? No, he's not. He's not. Can I give you proof that he's not? 
Dan and I were struggling going through an issue one day at IKEA, working through this. It was an issue to do with marriage and remarriage and divorce and all these things. And we spent, well, we'd already spent hours through the months on this, but we spent at least an hour and a half to two hours wrestling through this issue, still unsure what the answer was. And I turned to Dan and I said this. I said, Dan, you know what would be really cool? If Jesus was to physically be present here right now, this issue would be solved in 10 minutes. And he laughed. He says, you're right. Why? Because I'd say to him, Christ, what do we do? And he'd go, do this, do that, do this, do that, and we'd be done. <laughs> right? That's, it'd be that fast. And hey, that's why the disciples only trained for three years. Why didn't Jesus train them for 20? Because all he had to teach them was completed in three years. Hour after hour after hour, day after day, their training was complete. Now the application of their training wasn't complete because they didn't understand that till Pentecost. But Peter and the boys after Pentecost, we have no evidence in the scriptures that they were wondering what to do in certain situations in the church. Christ had taught them explicitly how to deal with all the issues they were facing. You and I don't have that privilege because we don't have him the same way. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, but it's not the same as having Jesus physically present. That's something we get in glory in the future. But here's the thing. Peter's still saying to these people that they're just as important to God and can have a wonderful relationship with the Lord despite the fact that they haven't seen him. And I go back to the days of Thomas. Remember Thomas? He, he, Jesus appears to him in the resurrection and, and after the resurrection and... Uh, he, and then he puts his hands out and he touches them and touches his side and then he, he, he believes because he sees them. And then Jesus says, blessed are you because you've seen me and believed. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. He's speaking to people like you and I and he's, Peter was speaking to these Christians here. But he's saying you don't have to have him physically present to still have this joy in him and to, to, be, to extol and magnify his name. You don't have to have that. I mean, Peter had it, but he's still saying there's still honorable, you still have wonderful faith, and you still have this tremendous relationship with him nonetheless. Now, what's really interesting, and I'll finish with this, is my, my Bible says this. <clears throat> he says, uh, Although you've not seen him, and you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. That word inexpressible, that word inexpressible only occurs once in the entire New Testament. Right here. Do you know what the word means? Unspeakable. Unspeakable. It describes a joy so profound that you're, all, you, you're, a loss, you're at a loss for words. You're at a loss for words. You know what the word glory means? It's to extol or magnify. It's used in Luke 2.20 to describe the shepherd's response to God after the angels appeared to them and after they went to see Jesus. They praised and gave God glory. It's also used in Luke 5.25, the paralytic man who was lowered to the roof. After he was healed, he picked up his mat and walked away. He went home glorifying or extolling, magnifying God's name. And even the people who witnessed it began in astonishment glorifying God's name. You get the sense of the words inexpressible. When you take inexpressible and glory, put them together, you see that you get the sense of the emotion here. There's so much joy in knowing Jesus Christ, Peter's saying, that you can't even express it with words. You can't even express it with words. That's how much this relationship matters. 
But when you do express them, you can't but help offer extreme praise and, mag and magnify his name and give him honor. This is what Peter is talking about and how we are to view Jesus in the midst of our trials. We don't have to let our circumstances dictate our joy. We don't. If you're rejected by the culture, ostracized from friends and family, yeah, it hurts a lot. But it doesn't have to destroy the foundation of who we are and our well-being. That can be fully intact just because of knowing who the Lord is. And again, that's so counterintuitive. Not counterproductive, counterintuitive. Usually if I'm rejected or socially hurt or ostracized, I uh, care more about my own feelings and where I'm at. And, and I basically sometimes have this kind of prayer like, God, where are you? Like, why have you abandoned me in this? It hurts so bad. And he's like, no, 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 you got it wrong. You can have complete joy so much that you're a lot of loss for words in the relationship I have with you. You can have complete joy in that because I am the source of your value, not what's happening. And besides, you're an alien. <laughs> this makes total sense that you're getting rejected. I want to read you just one verse to finish. It's a parallel verse. And basically, Peter basically, basically concludes with it. He says to them in verse uh, 13 of chapter 4, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with, uh, with exaltation. When you're suffering for the sake of Christ, you can rejoice because you're sharing in what He had to go through. A man who was socially and culturally rejected, discriminated against, harassed because of his connection to God. And his claims to be God. Give you two stories before we hit our lessons about two people I know that know how to live out this life that's inexpressible and full of glory in terms of how they view Jesus. And those of you in the houseboat know Hutch. Hutch is a guy from Asbury Seminary down in Kentucky. Uh, he's he's uh, active in the house churches in China. And he told me two stories years ago that I'll never forget. This first story is about a pastor who had been captured by the Chinese government and beaten and tortured a few times. And his body had scars all over it, and especially on his back. And every time he said that North American pastors or, or Christians would go over to China, they would um, ask to see the marks of his torture. And he would stop, this Chinese guy would stop and turn to them and say, why do you even care about those? Why don't you just want to talk about who Jesus Christ is? The guy wouldn't let these, these interested Christians even talk about the experiences he had in persecution. All he wanted to talk about was knowing who Jesus Christ and how much that relationship mattered to him. And he forced all of us, uh, all of us over here to get a perspective on, on the importance of who he is to us. Finally, he talked about um, attending a house church where he had, to, he had to basically cover up and be inconspicuous because of the threat to the, to the people there. He talked about being in a house church and all the, all the Christians there were on their knees on the floor of the house singing Amazing Grace, but they weren't singing. Because if they were to sing, they would alarm the neighbors and they could possibly get persecuted. So what were they doing? They were, they were being inexpressible with their words. A joyful, 
profound. They weren't even using words. They were mouthing the words of amazing grace with like full body expression. Just like, you know, like just going like that for the entire time until the song was over. So they had it really low, but they're mouthing it with all their might as they're on their knees praying, like just, just fully abandoned to the Lord in those ways. <laughs> this is what it means to understand that joy comes from knowing the Lord. And this is what Peter's saying to these people in the midst of trials. These Chinese people understood it. Uh, Peter understood it. These Christians understood it. And we will increasingly understand this more. Now this is just a comment. You can push back all you want against me. And, this, and I'm included in this bunch when I say this. But I bet you if we increase in our persecution in this church and in our culture, I bet you the, the worship, the actual physical worship that we have in here, like the, the singing part of it, will radically change in this church if we were to go through that. <laughs> I bet you our abandonment for the Lord and the way we express ourselves in a, in a physical sense would probably change when this increases. Because if, in the, how, if we're part of that Chinese church, what would you do in, if you were in that congregation? Would you continue to stand there with your mouth closed? What would you do? You'd probably go, man, i got a long ways to go and how I understand who Jesus is to me. And I'm included in that. So what are our lessons? I, these, these lessons, this is titled this. Um, this is Gaining God's Perspective on Dealing with Suffering. Ga- gaining God's Perspective. One, remember your alien status. You want God's perspective in the midst of suffering? Remember, that's normal. You're, you're a stranger. You don't belong in this world. Your you're responsibility is in this world, but ultimately, your future heaven, your future uh, home is in heaven. You belong to God. Number two, remember that you are one of God's chosen people. Right? Peter goes to great lengths to say, you're chosen according to God's foreknowledge. You're chosen out of His love. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be on your team. He set the Trinity in motion to accomplish that task. Remember that you're God's chosen. He initiated a plan to save you and had the entire Godhead involved to rescue you. There's comfort in trials knowing that. Three, remember your future promise of heaven. This is not your ultimate home. Here you'll have trials. Here you'll have rough circumstances. But ultimately, glory is where you belong. Four, remember God uses trials to refine your faith. You, want, you might want out of them. You might want to escape them. But God's saying this, I have to allow them. There's things in your life, there's things in my life that need to be worked through. And I'm testing you. I want to know if your faith is more valuable than gold. <laughs> I want to know that and I'm going to find out. But ultimately, the whole, it's not to hurt us. It's so that we can bring joy. Sorry, we can, we can at the end, when we come through it, we can result, it can result in praise and glory and honor when we meet Jesus Christ. And finally, fifth, remember to rejoice in your relationship with Christ. Okay? So we're to remember to, yeah, remember to rejoice in the fact we have a relationship with Jesus. Again, you can see why Peter's instruction is so counterintuitive. Because again, our tendency is to forget about Christ in the midst of trials. And Christ has said, uh-uh. I want you to understand that you can have a joy that's inexpressible, full of glory, in the midst of these trials.